this commission. Hey, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, today we're going to be discussing the Hall v. Sibelius lawsuit. Um, before we get to our program, though, let me just very quickly uh, point out Cato. Uh, Cato's Handbook for Policymakers. This is a resource we publish every four years now. It gives you a rundown of basically uh, pretty much any issue you'd be dealing with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from issues like, like health care to, to taxes to civil liberties, foreign policy. You name it, it's, it's there in the, the Handbook for Policymakers. It's a great resource to keep on your desk, especially as you're familiarizing yourself with new topics. And uh, it's something that, that, that we take a lot of pride in. We provide free of charge to all congressional offices. Uh, but if for some reason you don't have a copy, by all means come up to me or, or one of my colleagues here at Cato and be happy to get you one. Um, with that, we're going to move on to, to, the, uh, to the meat of today's program. Um, we're very, very pleased to have the lead counsel in the, uh, the Hall, versus, Hall v. Sibelius case with us today, uh, Kent Masterson-Brown. Uh, before I introduce him, though, I should also point out we have a couple uh, of the plaintiffs involved in the case here with us today. Uh, Brian Hall, the lead plaintiff, is floating around the back a minute ago. There he is. Uh, as well as John Krauss, uh, who's right here. Uh, so very, very pleased to, to be among some of the principal players uh, in, in this lawsuit. Uh, like I said, Kent Masterson-Brown is going to be our first speaker today. He's the, uh, the lead counsel in the case. Um, he's a historian, an author, and an attorney uh, with a very unique background, actually. In, in addition to being involved with, with this case, he's, he's been involved with a couple other uh, important cases, Stewart v. Sullivan and United Seniors Association v. Uh, v. Shalala. Um, he's also a, an expert on, on the history of the Civil War, which I found kind of interesting. He's written a number of books on the subject. Uh, perhaps those will prepare him for this battle. I'm not sure. Uh, he's, he's authored a, a very good study for the Cato Institute back in 2007 called The Freedom to Spend Your Own Money on Medical Care, A Common Casualty of Universal Coverage. Uh, his academic background, he has a B.A. in history from the Center College of Kentucky and uh, his J.D. from Washington and Lee University School of Law. With that, I'll turn things over to Mr. Brown. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, everybody hear me all right? Um, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be here. Let me, um, let me just start out by saying that uh, this is a, um, a civil action that was filed on October 8 of last year. And um, what this lawsuit does is simply challenge the validity of three internal rules of the Social Security Administration. These uh, three internal rules are from the Program Operations Manual System, or the POMS, P-O-M-S. Uh, of the Social Security system. And generally, what these three rules all do is that they um, make receipt of one's Social Security monthly retirement benefits contingent upon the individual enrolling in Medicare Part A. Medicare Part A is the hospitalization uh, arm of the Medicare system, Part B being, generally speaking, the providers, the physicians' um, uh, arm of Medicare. But this, uh, these rules, uh, and by the way, Part B uh, has always been administered by 
the Department of Health and Human Services and CMS as a voluntary program, and when one enrolls in Medicare, they actually send you a form where you can check the box, I do want Part B or I don't. Uh, but not so with Part A, um, at least insofar as the way in which it has been administered. So it makes a receipt of one's Social Security retirement benefits contingent upon you enrolling in Part A of Medicare. And the second thing these three palms do is it allows you to get out of Medicare Part A. But if you do, you lose all your Social Security retirement benefits, and you are required to repay to the Social Security Administration every benefit that had been paid to you. And they won't let you out until all the money has been collected. Now, I, I don't know about you, that's a, that's a, that is a rather onerous um, uh, set of rules, at least to me, particularly when you consider what the language is that Congress selected when it enacted Social Security and uh, Medicare Part A. Now, being the lawyer, I like to refer to the United States Code when I, uh, when I talk about this kind of thing. But all of what I'm going to talk about here is roughly in Title 42 and two sections, one Section 402, which is the eligibility for Social Security, and Section 426, which is eligibility for Medicare Part A. Both of those statutes, both of those statutes say simply this that for purposes of Section 402 in Social Security, if you reach age 62 and you have contributed to the Social Security program, quote, you shall be entitled to Social Security retirement benefits. It's that simple. For purposes of Section 426, that sets up eligibility for Medicare Part A, it reads, if you reach 65 and you are entitled to Social Security, you shall be entitled to Medicare Part A. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, I, in, in, in orally arguing this, this case, and we've done so twice now, one on a restraining order motion and the other on a government's motion to dismiss, uh, I constantly bring this to the attention of Judge Collier, and that is, uh, Judge, I mean, come on, uh, you know, for purposes of Social Security, they come up here and they say this is an entirely voluntary program, and indeed Social Security is. You don't have to get in Social Security. And it reads, if you have this age and you've contributed, you shall be entitled. And every court in the land that we've surveyed that has adjudicated whether or not Social Security is voluntary or not has used that language and said it's voluntary. Except when it comes to Medicare Part A, shall be entitled seems to mean something else. And no one has ever been able to explain to me why, nor do you, Judge, 
So uh, the, the gravamen of this case is, does Section 426 words shall be entitled mean the same thing as shall be entitled for purposes of 402? And, of course, it's absurd to think that it doesn't. And that's the, sole, the whole uh, object of this case is to void these three rules that try to make that different. And uh, in a very draconian, in a very draconian sense. Let me give you a little background about how this case arose. Now that I've kind of discussed what it's about, uh, it's about voiding these three palms and enjoining their enforcement. Um, I have been involved in Medicare litigation for quite some time. Um, and I've often thought, at least since the 90s, that um, uh, when the government comes up in every one of these cases, turns to the court and says, well, but judge, these people can always just get out of Medicare. That's one of their first lines of argument. And I used to say to you know, the court, oh, well, really, they can't. But the government has always used that line, that it's voluntary. Judge, it says, shall be entitled. And I said, somewhere along the line, someone's finally going to come forward and say, I don't want Medicare Part A, but I want my Social Security. And when that person does, that's going to be a most interesting piece of litigation. Well, you know, in uh, December 2007, I practice in Kentucky, and I also have offices here in in Washington with the Webster, Chamberlain, and Bean down just beyond the, the White House. And um, I was sitting in my office in Kentucky, and I got a call from a gentleman named Brian Hall from Catlett, Virginia. And he said, somehow or another, some people said I ought to call you about this, but uh, I signed up for my Social Security. I'm a retired uh, federal employee. I work for HUD and I had a really nice federal employee health benefits package, and I signed up for Social Security, and he says they gave me one application. And that application showed that I was signing up for my monthly retirement benefits, but it also said I'm also signing up for Medicare Part A, and I don't want Medicare Part A. And I said to him, I said, well, Brian, why don't you want Medicare Part A? He said, well, it's simple. My federal employee health benefits program's a hell of a lot better. And I don't have to give it up. And indeed you don't. If you're a federal employee and you have those benefits, you get the package, the booklet, and the booklet will tell you if you want Medicare, fine. If you don't, fine. We'll continue to cover you. And believe me, their benefits are a heck of a lot better than Medicare. I don't need to go into any details about that. And he said, I went in and signed up, and I said, I don't want Medicare Part A. I'm not going to sign this application. And the woman behind the desk said, well, if you don't sign the application, you don't get either. Because we only have one application. You have to sign up for both. And then he found out it was these palms that was dictating the way that application read and the fact that he had to sign up for both. Well, he needed his Social Security, so he signed up. And um, he was approaching a year before he had to be uh, uh, thrust into Medicare at 65. And so he calls me up and says, what can I do? Can I get out? And I said, well, Brian, uh, you know, uh, 
heck, uh, you're, you're, you're someone I'd like, to, I'd like to continue a relationship with here, but we're going to have to find some other people to, to help this out. This is not a, not a small matter. And it wasn't three months after that that um, a gentleman from Washington State called me who had some, some means, had the same sort of problem, except he wasn't a federal employee. He just set aside a lot of money for himself and his family to take care of himself over the course of years. And he says, I'd rather draw on my trust account than rely on Medicare. And I say, well, I'd rather pay for it myself, too. Uh, listen, uh, would you be interested? And he was. And then it was about four months later, yet a third one showed up by the name of uh, Norman uh, uh, Rogers from Florida. He was much in the same boat as the second one. And so those, those, those two, along with Brian Hall, uh, agreed to file this, this lawsuit. This is a lawsuit that literally began at ground zero. There is no organization behind this, no nothing. And uh, we filed this lawsuit on... Uh, October 8 of uh, 2008, uh, asking that the, um, that the court enjoin the enforcement of the three, the three palms. Well, uh, subsequent to uh, that lawsuit being filed, they got, uh, we got some press on it, and I got a call from a man named John Krause from uh, Pennsylvania, and John is with us as well as Brian, and John had heard about the lawsuit and said, look it, I've got a real problem. I'm a federal employee, too. Uh, you know, I always tell people, I've never in my 35 years of law practice represented a real rocket scientist. Uh, John turns out to be a rocket scientist. This guy went to MIT and uh, then Penn State University, got a Ph.D., has been in the uh, what is it, the rocket propulsion business with NASA and the Department of the Navy ever since. He, um, he like uh, Brian Hall, was a part of the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program. And when he signed up uh, to, uh, uh, for his Social Security, he got the same application that Brian Hall did. And um, he didn't want Medicare because he had a better program under his federal employee health benefits. And by the way, both John Krause and Brian Hall have health savings accounts under that program as well. And they just wanted to be able to spend as much of their own money on health care as they could, and uh, for their own good. And they wanted to be able to participate in that federal employee health benefits program and uh, not take Medicare. And I asked John, I said, uh, John, look at um, one of the issues that's going to come up here is the uh, issue of exhaustion of remedies. Now, you, you applied for your um, Social Security, and uh, you were told you had to take Medicare, and you went ahead and signed that application. Did you try to then get out of Medicare? And he goes, I did, Kent. He says, I told them I didn't want it. He says, there was no application for me to apply for any sort of relief administratively. So uh, what I did, I just wrote all over the application that I don't want Medicare, and I appeal this thing. And um, he said, I got an initial determination, and they virtually told me to you know, go to blazes. You're not getting out. And he said, then what I did, I said, well, I'll, then I want an administrative law judge to look at that. So he said, I applied for an administrative law judge in February 2006. And he says, you know, I haven't heard anything since. 
He says, I've gotten my congresswoman involved, we've cajoled, we've badgered, and we cannot get any, um, any ALJ to be assigned to this at all. So for three years, he sat there and waited for something to happen administratively. Well, you know, that didn't surprise me at all. Brian Hall told me that when he was turned down, he, uh, he telephoned the general counsel of Health and Human Services and the general counsel of Social Security both. And both of them told him there's no way you can get out. There's no process for you to get out. So um, he said, Kent, that's why I turned to you. I don't think there's a process I can follow to get out of Medicare Part A. So I got these, uh, these, uh, these two federal employees in tow, and then finally in December, I got a call from none other than Dick Armey, the former majority leader of the House of Representatives here. And Dick, interestingly, had talked to me about doing this back in the 90s when he had retired from, about to retire from Congress. And, and um, we talked off and on for some, some months, and then he decided to just... Uh, uh, eat it, so to speak, and when he read that this case was being filed, he called again, and so he was the last person we added as a plaintiff in this case in an amended um, complaint. Well, those are the, those are the five plaintiffs. Um, three of them are former federal employees, all with federal employee health benefits. Uh, two of them are private citizens who... Um, uh, uh, have put aside money of their own to take care of themselves. And interestingly, those two um, had also never even signed up for Social Security, knowing that if they did, they would have to take Medicare, and they don't want Medicare. So uh, it's with uh, those five people that this case uh, was pursued. Uh, Brian Hall um, was about ready to be uh, uh, placed, uh, enrolled into the Medicare system on January 1 of this year, and we brought on a restraining order a motion for the court to consider uh, in early January to see if they could uh, keep him from being enrolled in Medicare Part A. The court um, uh, entered an order denying that, and then the government filed its, uh, its inevitable motion to dismiss, claiming that the plaintiffs had not exhausted remedy, their administrative remedies, and because of that, the entire case should be dismissed. All that was briefed and finally argued on the 22nd of May. Um, after the argument was concluded, the court uh, uh, considered this until the 29th of September, when it entered its memorandum opinion, which uh, has brought us here. Uh, this memorandum opinion, um, in, in sum and substance, uh, dismissed the two private individuals, Lou Randall and Norm Rogers, claiming that they didn't have standing because they didn't actually access the system. Uh, we take strong uh, a disagreement with that. However, it overruled the government's motion with respect to the three federal employees and determined that they have standing to litigate um, and that they need not exhaust administrative remedies. And I, I got to tell you, folks, um, you know, after the, um, the Supreme Court's 2000 opinion in Illinois Council against Shalala, um, 
the Supreme Court really has all but shut down um, uh, actions in federal court against administrative rules and regs unless an individual has completely exhausted every administrative remedy. And uh, that we have managed to uh, convince this court that with respect to uh, the three that we have here, that they need not exhaust remedies. And this is how the court has ruled is something we regard as rather extraordinary. Um, Given the state of jurisprudence today, uh, we believe it's absolutely correct, obviously, that she do that, uh, given the the effort that uh, that certainly people like John Krauss has put into this. You know, also we had, in in filing uh, all all this, we, we were cognizant of one other individual that I need to mention here, a man named David Nelson, from, um, from Oregon. David Nelson is a man who's not a plaintiff in this case. Uh, he is a witness of ours, and his facts were actually recited in the complaint that we filed in this case. David Nelson tried to get out of Medicare back in the 90s and keep his Social Security. And he had counsel actually appeal to the um, uh, Social Security Administration and to um, uh, Health and Human Services in an effort to exhaust remedies. And the sum and substance of that, uh, ca- of that matter was that the general counsel of Health and Human Services responded by saying, there is no way in which any individual can get out of Medicare Part A, and so consequently we will not even make an initial determination for you. And we filed those letters from the general counsel with the complaint stating that uh, the efforts that John Krauss made and the effort that uh, Brian Hall made in an effort to get out of Medicare Part A are not unique. This is a tack that the government has taken with respect to those who want to get out of Medicare, Medicare Part A for some time. And all the responses seem to be the same. And that is, fella, there's no way you can get out of Medicare Part A. And indeed, during the course of time in which we were arguing the restraining order last January, uh, the Justice Department counsel uh, kept reiterating to the court, uh, Your Honor, there's no way Mr. Hall can get out of Medicare Part A. Now, don't you think we used that against them on May 22nd? Indeed, we did. Because we argue, Judge, look it, they want to they say these people should exhaust their administrative remedies, but it's utterly futile for them to do it. We know exactly what the department's going to say with respect to their appeal. Because they've just said it. And they said it last January. And they said it to David Nelson. And John Krause, who's been waiting for more than three years, nearly going on five, uh, four years at this stage, for an administrative law judge, is classic evidence of what this department is going to do. One, they're going to either ignore you, or they're going to rubber stamp what they're already telling you anyway. 100% certainty. So why exhaust? Well, you know, that's exactly what the court finally wound up saying. Was that, uh, uh, look at, um, uh, sure, uh, these guys have standing to litigate. They're being harmed. And, uh, but none of them, Brian Hall, John Krause, Dick Armey, have exhausted their remedies. None of them did. Some of them tried to go through the process. Some have been stalled for three years or more. But none of them actually exhausted all the remedies that were due them. But the court said this. 
that even though they haven't exhausted the law in this circuit, and frankly, the law in all circuits, is that when it's utterly futile for one to exhaust, you're excused. And that's where the court came down, finding that it was utterly futile for them to try to reapproach the Department of uh, Health and Human Services or the Social Security Administration to get them to consider their palms uh, because they simply would not and they have expressed such in this court. But then the court said one other thing, that not only would would it be futile for them to do so, but the court also said that when a federal agency is clearly in violation of federal law in doing what it's doing, that forms an excuse for not exhausting remedies. It's all by itself. And what have they done that has violated federal law? Well, the court outlined it. And that is um, these palms, uh, they say things that the statutes do not. The statutes don't make Medicare Part A uh, essential for you to get your Social Security. She said there's nothing in the Social Security Act that makes you, uh, your Social Security benefits contingent upon anything, much less you becoming enrolled in Medicare Part A. And there's nothing in the statute that would force an individual who wants to get out of Medicare to repay all one's Social Security benefits back to the government and get out of uh, Social Security, too. There's nothing in the statute that says that. And when, a, when, a, when an agency not only makes it such that it would be futile to approach them, but they appear to be so in violation of what Congress has dictated, then it's time for the court to enter and act. And, of course, that's been our argument from the very beginning. Uh, what the court has done is given the Justice Department the two agencies, Social Security and, and, um, and Health and Human Services, until October 30 to respond to a pending motion of ours for summary judgment in the case. We anticipate they'll file a, uh, a motion, counter motion or cross motion for summary themselves. Uh, then we'll brief it within 30 days after that, and the case will fundamentally be set for oral argument on the merits. And uh, given what the court has said thus far about its opinion regarding uh, the palms and whether they measure up to the statutes, uh, we, feel, uh, we feel pretty good about the, uh, about the outcome. Uh, I guess in, in closing here on my remarks, let me just say this. Uh, the, the frightening thing about a case like this and about what's happened in a case like this is an agency that's just exercising unfettered, uh, 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 it's, it's doing anything it wants. And um, when we're facing uh, health reform, uh, uh, we're talking about bills that are 1,200 pages long. Hell, even out in Kentucky, we read House Bill 3200. I mean, uh, or at least looked at it. I mean, uh, the thing's a monster. Imagine what the agencies would do with this. And if, if you've got two statutes that are so clear as these, these two, and they come along and they, they, they on their own legislate, the way they have done, imagine what could happen in health reform uh, if it even is close 
to the size that we're looking at in some of the preliminary bills we've seen. Um, keeping agencies in tow, making them do only what Congress has dictated is fundamentally essential to the republic, and this is a case where it has uh, literally run amok, if you ask me. So that's, uh, that's where we are. Okay? Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, next up, we have Michael Cannon. He is the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's also the author of this, uh, co-author of this book, Healthy Competition, which is an excellent resource, really good, uh, really good healthcare book uh, in terms of laying out the problems with healthcare and and, uh, and actually setting forth some solutions. Uh, prior to joining Cato, uh, Michael was a domestic policy analyst for the uh, Senate Republican Policy Committee. Uh, he holds bachelor's a bachelor degree uh, from the University of Virginia and master's degrees in economics and law and economics from George Mason. Uh, Michael? Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, thank you, Kent, for, uh, for, for uh, filing this case and for coming here to talk to us about it today. And thank you all for coming, taking some time out of what is a very busy Tuesday for health care reform. As we... Uh, speak as we uh, hear the Senate Finance Committee is preparing to vote on its version of health care reform. But I submit that uh, this case, Hall versus Sibelius, has important implications for what Congress is putting together, for all the bills that, uh, that have made it uh, through committee in, in the House and uh, all the bills, all the, the leading bills in the Senate. Because all five of those health care bills would create what I would call a new government-run health program. Now, in the Senate Finance Committee bill, they say that it's not going to be government-run. It's going to be private. It's just going to have get startup subsidies from the government, and um, and those subsidies are going to be paid back over time. I'm of the mind that he who pays the piper calls the tune, so I'm still going to call that a government-run health plan. But proponents of this strategy, President Obama, his allies here on Capitol Hill, say, you know what? If we create a new government program as an option for people under age 65, and we let it compete with private health insurance companies, that's going to keep the private sector honest. And why wouldn't we want this? I mean, Medicare is a very popular program. If that's how government programs are run, we'll ask any senior citizen. They say, yes, I like my Medicare, and they are going to uh, uh, scream to high heaven if you try to uh, take it away from them. And besides, if we have a level playing field between the government and private insurance companies, then competition will decide... uh, which does a better job of providing secure health insurance coverage uh, to people under age 65. So, you know, if that's what we're creating here in Congress, well, then what's not to like? And I've often said that if the federal government could compete with the private sector such that the federal government's or the, the, the government plan's premiums reflected its full costs and the private sector uh, plan's premiums reflected only their actual costs, then consumers would have nothing to fear. Competition uh, would, would, would tell, tell us who does the best job. But, of course, there's a lot of problems with the story that we're told about how this sort of competition would operate. The first one is that, well, yes, Medicare is popular among senior citizens, but that doesn't mean that Medicare is a particularly well-run program. I mean, a program is obviously going to be popular uh, among uh, a certain uh, constituency if they're getting out of that program far more than they ever put in, and senior citizens get out of Medicare sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars more than they pay in, in taxes and in, uh, and in premiums. So, um, so and, and at the same time, the quality of uh, 
care and Medicare is not that great. If you look at the uh, academic research on uh, on the Medicare program, uh, you'll find that it does um, that that the quality of medical care in that and other government programs tends to be similar to or even worse than the quality of care in private insurance. That might be because government programs uniformly lag private insurance plans when it comes to quality innovations like integrated care or pay for performance. And yet beneath the surface, even though the government does a little worse or as good as, as private insurance on most quality measures, government programs actually pull down the quality of care for people in public and private insurance plans alike. And that's because the Medicare program being the biggest payer uh, being the 100-pound gorilla, it purchases the, – I'm sorry, the 800-pound gorilla, it purchases more medical care than any other health plan in the world. It dramatically affects the medical care that we, that, that we all receive in the delivery system uh, here in the United States. So that when people complain that we have fragmented care in, uh, in the United States, that we lack electronic medical records, we lack comparative effectiveness research, that uh, there is an epidemic of medical errors uh, in U.S. hospitals, they're not complaining about market forces. They're not complaining about what competition, market competition produces. They're complaining about government. They're complaining about how government manages health care. They're complaining about the Medicare program because the Medicare program encourages fragmented care, it encourages medical errors, and it penalizes efforts uh, to, to reduce those problems. So uh, if that's what government health programs do, uh, we shouldn't have anything to fear from competition because people will just not choose those programs. Isn't that right? Actually, it's uh, not that simple because uh, a new government program could still lure consumers out of private insurance despite offering an inferior product, and the reason is because – and therefore drive health in, private health insurance plans from the market and leave us with less competition, not more, and lower quality care. And the reason is because the government can always subsidize uh, its health plan either directly or indirectly and therefore undercut the premiums of private insurers. Now, what are some examples of those uh, direct subsidies? Well, the government can just uh, throw cash at its own program. Direct taxpayer subsidies. Now, we're told that this isn't going to happen. That would be really obvious anyway. Uh, and so the bills say that, uh, that the premiums in these plans will cover the full cost of, of any new government plan. Oh, except for, you know, there's sometimes uh, there, there's going to be startup subsidies. Uh, the, um, uh, the bill before the Senate Finance Committee would create – would have the – essentially have the government be the venture, capitalist, uh, uh, venture capital firm for uh, new, quote-unquote, private health plans, uh, giving startup subsidies, billions of dollars in startup subsidies to these, these plans, and they're supposed to be repaid over time. Well, maybe they will be repaid over time, and maybe they won't. But creating a new government program, an explicitly government-run program, and building it up around Medicare's existing infrastructure is also uh, a form of, uh, of, of a direct subsidy. Uh, that that private insurers uh, uh, don't enjoy. Take uh, another aspect of these of these uh, proposals. The government plan would co would compete in uh, compete with private insurers in new health, national health insurance exchanges is what these these bills would create a new marketplace for this sort of competition. Each of these exchanges would have what they call a risk adjustment mechanism. What does risk adjustment mean? Well, it means that if a certain plan attracts a disproportionate share of sick people or if they just do a really poor job of, uh, of, of rooting out wasteful expenditures, then they're going to get extra money from this government uh, risk adjustment mechanism. So you can easily see how if the government program uh, becomes a magnet for the sickest uh, 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 in, uh, 
enrollees in these in, in this in this exchange, the risk adjustment mechanism could easily become uh, a mechanism for taxing insurance private insurance companies, which is where the risk adjustment scheme is going to get its revenue. Taxes uh, applied to um, to competitors in the exchange. How it could easily become a mechanism for just taxing private insurers to subsidize the government program. Uh, another way that uh, the government could subsidize this program, it could fail to include certain costs when determining the premiums. Right now, the Medicare program, when we hear that uh, only 3% of Medicare um, uh, or administrative costs in the Medicare program account for only 3% of claims, well, when people generate that statistic, they're not counting other costs, administrative costs that the federal government incurs outside of the Department of Health and Human Services that support the Medicare program. If we just ignore those costs when calculating the premiums of a new plan, Voila, we've got a, a subsidy for that, for that plan. There are also indirect subsidies that the government can shower on its own, uh, on its own uh, health plan. The fact that the government essentially coerces people to participate in programs like uh, Medicare and Social Security gives it one way of indirectly subsidizing a new program. It creates opportunities to grant uh, special advantages to that program. Uh, for example, it could require providers to participate in the new uh, program as a condition of participating in Medicare. Uh, it's very difficult for a, lot of, for, uh, for a doctor and impossible for a, for a hospital to remain in business if it doesn't accept Medicare. So with that one change, and that's not in the bills right now, but it could be put into the legislature. If Congress uh, creates the new program, it could be easily put in next year. That would give uh, a large indirect subsidy to a new government program uh, and disadvantage the private insurers with which that government program competes. A less, uh, a less obvious form of government subsidy uh, or indirect subsidy, the price controls that government programs use to purchase things like prescription drugs actually increase the prices. They have the uh, unintended consequence of increasing the prices that private insurers pay for those same products. Now, some people will say this is cost-shifting. Some people will say that, it is, that there are other factors involved, and I, I tend to think that it's not cost-shifting. But it has been estimated that the price controls in the Medicaid program increase prescription drug prices for private purchasers by 15%. If Congress adjusts those price controls, tightens them even further, then that could force private insurers to pay even more, uh, reducing the amount that the government has to pay, increasing the amount that private insurers have to pay, and giving the government plan another um, uh, indirect subsidy. There's also, and some people say, you know what, we can, we can put it in the law that the government won't do any of these things, that there won't be any form of direct or implicit subsidy uh, all the premiums are going to or, uh, ref, the, the premiums are going to reflect the full cost of operating these programs, and we can create a level playing field. No matter how hard, and I want to argue to you that no matter how hard Congress tries to create that level playing field, it will be impossible to do. And here's why: because the new uh, government program uh, will come with. Uh, Everyone will regard that program much as they regarded Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is a creature of Congress. And if the premiums uh, that this plan charges are insufficient to cover the claims that it, uh, that it incurs, everyone is pretty much going to believe, yeah, Congress is going to do what they did with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're going to bail out this new program. They're not going to let their new program fail. What that means is that people who lend to that new government program are going to face less of a risk than if they lend it to a private insurance company. As a result, the financial uh, markets are going to compete to offer that government plan lower rates when lending money, and that is going to save the government plan money uh, in, and, uh, and tilt the playing field toward the government plan. And President Obama's economic advisor, Larry Summers, uh, 
has, has uh, submitted reports to Congress when he was in the Clinton administration that said, yeah, actually, that implicit bailout guarantee actually saved Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on the order of $6 billion per year. So that's not chump change, and it's an important subsidy that Congress cannot, cannot get rid of. It cannot prevent that because it cannot credibly pre-commit to, uh, uh, to not bailing out its own program. Nobody's going to believe Congress, even if they say that they're going to do that. And a final way that, that Congress can, can subsidize its own program is by taxing private insurers. Uh, government-sponsored enterprises like the Postal uh, Service, they don't pay taxes. Uh, likely neither would this, uh, this new program. And so uh, right now, the CBO estimates that uh, taxes account for 1.2% of private health insurance premiums. Senator Schumer and others have proposed increasing taxes on private insurance companies. The House is talking about a windfall profits tax. Well, you know what? A government program doesn't have profits, so you can't tax uh, the profits of a government plan. That tax is only going to hit private insurers. Yet another way the government can advantage its own program. But what does Hall versus Sibelius have to do with this? Well, Hall versus Sibelius shows us exactly how easy it would be uh, for the for the uh, federal government to make tiny little changes that advantage its own program, hurt its competitors, and how long it would take to discover those uh, those tweaks those uh, to the program and correct them. Uh, Kent informs us that uh, it was in 1993 that the Social Security Administration told senior citizens that if you want your Social Security benefits, you have to enroll in Medicare Part A. We don't care if you would prefer private health insurance coverage. We are going to effectively coerce you into participating in Medicare Part A because we know that most of you cannot afford to live without your Social Security check. Now, that happened in 1993. It took 15 years for that change in uh, the Social Security Administration's eligibility rules for uh, Social Security to reach judicial notice. And we don't know how, how long it's going to take before that change is corrected. Imagine what all sorts of federal bureaucrats toiling, toiling in obscurity would be able to do for years and years bef uh, to advantage a government program uh, before uh, that was noticed or corrected. Uh, maybe they would just not count some of the uh, program's administrative costs when <coughs> setting premiums. Maybe they would just... Oh, use a lower solvency standard, financial solvency standard for the government program, because after all, the, the, the new government health insurance plan would be backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Uh, as I said, it could take decades uh, in order for, uh, before uh, people notice this, these changes and before they're corrected. So I, I think that Hall versus Sibelius comes at a, at a crucial time in the health care debate. It exposes the folly of the, that we could have a level playing field between the government and private health insurance companies because any such competition would be about as fair as your kid's lemonade stand competing with Al Capone. Thank you very much.